Hey Carl, just wanted to let you know in the recap of our game that you forgot to mention that weapons that were larger than a pistol had to be checked in and paid for at the time of disembarking from the ship. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Geomologist Presents. That was my wife, Amy, making sure I was accurate. Yes, it is true that when they got to the station, a couple things occurred, actually. One, their weapons were weapons bigger than a pistol and or a knife or melee weapons were confiscated, and they had to put them in the marshal's ship's locker at the marshal station, register them, and, and that that was the case for... The soldier who has an M21, like an M16 type of rifle, assault rifle. And the other thing they had to do is they had to pay for oxygen in advance. So they had to pay a certain amount for oxygen. So that's kind of why maybe they were destitute when they got there. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool, it's for the Lost Colony. It's a Deadlands-ish expansion. It takes place in the far future. There is a pretty, you know, it kind of takes place after Deadlands Noir and um, in the, I guess, 23rd, 24th century, and what happens on Earth after the, you know, with Ghost Rock and the Deadlands, and they establish this wormhole to this other world and go there and then are, are trapped. There's actually a whole very classic adventure that deals with that, which is kind of cool. Um, and that ship that goes through and crashes is in, in somewhere in the Lost Colony solar system. But uh, maybe we'll get back to it. We'll see. It's going to be like a backup or go-to game. But Amy and I just want to fart around and do some uh, RPG. Um, so, yeah. So welcome to the Geomologist. Like I said, I feel like I'm behind and I have a backlog of things to talk about and a lot of call-ins that you guys have, have given me. Um, so we're going to get to those. And I think that'll be the first part of the show is call-ins and then... I'll break it up, kind of a compromise between like little sections and a one long stream. So I'll break it up after the call-ins and discuss and respond to those and then uh, talk about some of the games that I've played. I think I'm going to try to uh, keep it uh, maybe maybe short, maybe just talk about one game and then talk about other games after, or, or maybe we'll see how it goes. You never know. You never know here, right? <laughs> All right, on with the call-ins. Hey Carl, this is Manion, also known as Rob, just calling in about the uh, foundation of America. Obviously, I'm not American, but I, it's an interesting subject. So uh, for me, uh, my mother is Canadian and my father is Scottish. Um, my mother's family moved within one generation um, before her to Canada. And my father had family members uh, in his lifetime that moved out there. His brothers and sisters emigrated to Canada. And I think the big driving force uh, behind their immigra immigration, which would have been in the 1900s, was uh, poverty, you know, and, and, and looking for new opportunities, which they couldn't necessarily get at home, um, particularly uh, 
well, yeah, before and after the war, things were quite tough, and probably they were tough when they arrived in the New World as well. Yeah, sorry, I'm not sure if New World is a term that is still used. Obviously, that's sort of very uh, subjective, isn't it? Um, but again, in these arguments, you, yeah, you do see, I mean, when you talk about, talk to a lot of Amer- Americans with uh, with British blood or nearly everybody is related to King William the Conqueror or Robert the Bruce, you know, King of Scotland. Uh, why on earth did they ever move out? And this is a curious thing that the, the perceptions of, of more recent immigrants and the perception of people who immigrated in many generations previously seem to be quite different. Um, um, I think, yeah, the driving force of immigration as we see it in the world today is usually uh, economic. Uh, people want better opportunities and mixed in with those economic reasons are uh, you know, uh, government reasons and, and religious reasons. I think they're all mixed in together, these sort of socio-economic uh, political reasons. Sorry about that word salad at the end there, but hopefully you can make sense of it. Uh, I suppose, um, yeah, it, it's a funny thing. When we look at history, we'd never see the individuals. We, we, we tend, or we never see the ordinary individuals, just the everyday uh, people. We, we tend to focus on the huge movers and shakers, you know, the the religion the the governments the wars, um, and we seldom look at you know ordinary people and what was affecting them what were their motivations, you know I think for the most part, people are looking for a sense of security, you know whether uh, and uh, you know and the safety the freedom, uh, to do what they, just to live you know and get by in, in as best a way they can so, whether that's religious or or political or or economic. Um, I don't think they can be easily separated, but I, sh- you know, surely they they were people moved for those reasons, you know, for freedom and liberty. That was Rob, aka Menyon, whose podcast is Confessions of a Wee Tim Rasbucci. and thank you for those very insightful calls, Rob. Yeah, it's it's kind of what is our origin? We always look to see how we got here. I know that I did 23andMe a few years back, and it was fascinating to see how how mixed up my DNA was. It was it was kind of cool. Yeah, sure, I have origins from you know Mexico and Central America. That's where my uh, father and mother are from. But I also had you know lineage dating back to uh, the O'Neill clan in Scot in uh, Ireland somehow from like 10,000 years ago, according to the the haplotypes that were mapped out in my DNA. And I had um, origins from Africa, which makes sense. My mom is from the Caribbean. So yeah, it's, it's you know, we are a big mix and amalgamation. And we all kind of hinge on to those few things that where are we from? Um, but it's very interesting. Like, how did we get here? Where did we come from? I've always wanted to do a colony game, uh, maybe more of a Scandinavian colonization and courts of blend it with Like, I think one of the games I'd love to run is a werewolf, uh, the Forsaken game, or Apocalypse, it doesn't matter, um, taking place during the the Viking Age of Exploration from uh, Iceland to Greenland to Vinland. Uh, That'd be kind of cool. I'm always fascinated by that. And I would recommend, I know you mentioned another point that we always look at the movers and shakers. There's this really cool uh, set of programs called The History of Britain, it's narrated by Tony Robinson of Time Team and Black Adder fame. And it talks about not the movers and shakers, but the regular people who lived during the big periods of, of Britain 
from Roman to Saxon to medieval to Tudor to Victorian, World War I, uh, World War II. Um, it's like a two, two seasons of series that uh, talk about this four episodes per series. So uh, it's really cool, and I, I definitely recommend it. I'll try to find it and put a link to at least the first episode in the show notes um, or a link to uh, where you can watch the YouTube videos uh, for it. It's really done very well, and it's Tony Robinson who always adds um, a cool flair to the history of, of Britain and uh, time team stuff, you know, archaeology. Makes archaeology fun. <laughs> okay, our next call is from Jason Connerly. And he gets to have another. Well, oh, Rob, uh, if you call in again, hey, was that was that uh, intro, music intro dramatic enough for you? I hope so. Anyway, our next call, I believe, is from Jason Connerly. Just to clarify my statement, by the way, with colonies and religion. I said most of the colonies weren't Puritan. There definitely religion was involved with a number of the colonies being founded. Yes, yeah, but you have Catholics and Quakers, and of course the Anglican Church predominates, Episcopalian Church later. But but for the most part, the majority of the colonies weren't Puritans as such. That that's my point. Not that there wasn't you know religion involved in some of the founding just that they weren't actually Puritans. In fact, Roger Williams of Rhode Island would, I don't know, he might punch in the face if he called him a Puritan. So that, that may be worth looking into there. But anyhow, I agree. It's probably not the subject for a gaming podcast, but let me listen to the rest of your show. Good insight, Jason. Thank you for the call. Maybe it's not the subject for a gaming podcast, but you know what? It does inspire me to break out some of my colonial Gothic products. And I know I have a Call of Cthulhu like monograph that takes place during the revolution or in the colonial period, um, which might be kind of fun to do. I always liked that area and that period of history. And it's interesting. Roger Williams is listed as a Puritan or that's it. But maybe I guess he broke off potentially. I probably broke off. Right. And maybe he would punch you in the face if you called him that. Um, and I guess the Puritans, right? So we hear about them leaving England and colonizing uh, North America and Plymouth Rock and all that. I guess they also gain uh, notoriety or notoriousness because of the uh, their tyrannical control of people and their uh, religious intolerance and the Salem witch trials, right? But um, yeah, I mean, it's a could be a cool verse to set um, a cool time period to set games in. I think. What do you think? Sounds like both your duet games were a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so, sounds good. Glad you got to play them. It's excellent that you're able to make use of that time and weren't able, didn't just have to say, "Oh, well, we're not going to play today." So, sounds like duet games are an excellent way to do it. And the key is just to have something handy that'll work. It sounds like you have that covered. So congratulations on that. And yeah, take care. I hope you have a great week. Maybe I'll get to talk to you on Wednesday. Yeah, honestly, with the duet games, or you know, one player, one GM, however you want to call them. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like, oh man, 
like you're on the spot, right? You have to, for lack of a better term, perform for your player, and there's no other players to riff on, riff from. So yeah, they're challenging, but yeah, they ended up really cool, really fun. I really enjoyed the desanction. It was fun, and uh, as you notice in both of them, there was like the main player and then a sidekick, which probably helps with lethality and the danger of you know advers ad adversaries in the game. So um, and and the cool thing, I think both the, both game systems, the desanction game system, and the Savage World system for Lost Colony kind of can scale up or down um, based on necessity. Although, again, you know, it's definitely more lethal if you just have one uh, one player character. So the sidekick thing worked really well. Uh, would I do it regular? I don't know. Maybe it'll end up doing that. I've been doing that with Amy uh, with the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, she's asking if Keiko can have another adventure. Um, maybe depending on schedules, maybe. Uh, we'll, we'll see, you know. Um, so the cool thing is we were able to get that Deadlands game in. Um, so I'll talk about that, I think. I think I might talk about Warhammer Fantasy and Deadlands as recaps in this episode and save all the spacey stuff for another one. But, um, yeah, um, thanks for the calls, Jason. Always insightful and cool to hear you and you get your input. And the next person, well, gets their own theme song so call me dr love they call me dr love calling dr love i am your doctor of love calling dr love hey carl awesome episode man yeah one-on-one gaming solo gaming duet game whatever you want to call it it's awesome i'm glad you had a chance to do some I wish I had a chance to do a little more, but I'm a weirdo when it comes to that kind of stuff, so I don't know. But I wanted to uh, share my tale of the Masons with you. Uh, several, like a decade plus ago, there was a festival going on in the neighborhood that I lived in and all kinds of shops and people had all sorts of booths set up. Me and my buddy were walking around super wasted and there was a, a Masons booth set up. And we totally wanted to join. We signed up. We gave them our information. All that's our name and phone number. They never called us. Like, how? <laughs> I don't know, man. We were too too crazy for the Masons, I guess. Anyway, dude, peace out. Wow, that sounds like an intro for a Delta Green adventure or setup. Man, Joe, you have the weirdest stories. You know, maybe we should write a book about your life or Joe Richter, the RPG Dr. Love, comma, Joe Richter, the RPG. But yeah, that, I mean, you have to file the serial numbers off, of course. Um, and uh, it'd be interesting to kind of see where that goes. Why maybe like some of your buddies were invited to go, but you never were, but then you never heard from them again or, or didn't hear from them for a while and suddenly you hear from them again. Um, yeah, I get a weird phone call. That'd be kind of interesting. Or scary. I don't know. Maybe too close to reality. I know that um, Trailer Cthulhu, the Gumshoe Group, um, for Pelgrane Press, they did do a kind of adventure where Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard were there. But of course, they changed the names so they wouldn't get sued. And it was cool because what well, had like um, 
Theodore Sturgeon, Robert Heinlein and his wife, and one other, oh, Philip K. Dick as player characters. That'd be a fun one to try to figure out to run, uh, where you're the sci-fi authors and uh, you run afoul of the Scientology mythos slash mythos. Yeah, kind of cool. Anyway, thanks for the call, Joe. And uh, now let's um, get to some recaps. been like two weeks since i last played warhammer fantasy roleplay and i'm supposed to play today so i might as well get this recap out before it fades from memory so we're playing through spoilers ahead we're playing through the enemy within uh mega campaign we are on death on the reich we play uh warhammer fantasy roleplaying the fourth edition with the beautiful uh slip cases that kind of come with it if you get the deluxe version you get both the uh, adventure and then the companion that goes along with that particular chapter. There are five chapters. We're in chapter two, Death on the Reich. And the players have just come from an excursion into these hills that are were full of chaos. Uh, there was like warpstone that influenced this area. They put some ghosts to rest. They had an encounter with mutants. They know that some people got away. Um, especially one that one of the players' characters discovered, or there is like this perfume that was lingering in the air, and it's very distinct. And uh, one of the player characters says, "Like I will remember the smell." Um, they get back to the inn. They don't linger long because they know that there are people out there that were probably after the same thing they were, and they want to stay ahead of them, which I think is great. They do some trade though, and that's kind of a neat thing that was in the companion for death on the reich and one of the players uh, loves the idea of owning a boat and making money so they discover you get to roll randomly on this table but it's kind of cool and they discover that there's some nice brandy that is made in this area and uh so they buy it in bulk and they go to down to kemper band it is uneventful and they sell it off and they also learn that man kemper band is known for its brandy but maybe they kind of get the brandy from these outlying villages and then call it their own, which is curious and maybe could be visited later on. Um, they continue ever onward towards back towards the signal tower. And, um, and it again goes uneventful. Um, it's very good sailing. Uh, they're going down river this time. So it's like no issues. Uh, the wind is favorable, etc. It's almost as if chaos has turned a blind eye or been forced taken a punch in the nose and have been forced to look down and look away from the players. They get to the signal tower. Um, they have the last key that they found. They open it up and it, there's like this staircase telescopes down into the earth. They go in and they find a library and they find some very interesting things. They can't read it all. Uh, they find some clues that uh, this was a, li a library um, run put together by a Wittgenstein uh, ancestor and they realize that the warp stone that probably fell in that crater back in those bleak hills is probably at Castle Wittgenstein 
And uh, yeah, they're gonna go deal with that and get it. Um, they know it'll probably be deadly. It might be their last stand against chaos, but uh, they strap on their belts and tighten their the buckles on their armor and go. And um, they kind of sail back upriver. They're heading towards the price stop in Kemperban. Maybe they'll bypass it. But uh, it, it's interesting. Like during this whole time, the uh, the knight character has had this like person in his dreams, and he finally is able to win the contest of wills, and he sees who it is, and it is that student that he's caught a glimpse of back in Altorf that they shared a coach ride back at the beginning, like almost the first. Like the players were commenting, this happened like the first session that they met this guy and now he's come back and um the player character has his knight confront them in this sort of dreamscape and he he throttles him um gets the best of him uh he knows that they're on to them but at least he's got this guy on the ropes he wakes up before he can like finish him off in the dream um but they know something's coming and that same day, in fact, a boat kind of sails towards them, um, coming out of the harbor of Kemperband. Uh, Ulrich, the boatman, does his best to avoid a head-on collision, but as it comes alongside, there is like at least a dozen mutants, and they throw grapples to grapple aboard the Endeavor and try to board, and they're going to attempt to board it. Uh, and the player characters, I don't know, somehow they fail... They failed their their ability to perceive what's going on. Maybe there was a miasma or a mist in their heads, and what they hear and how we ended the session was the cackling of a of, of this woman, the waft of that perfume. This woman is flying at them from that boat, like flying in the air. So, yeah, we'll pick it up today. I hope we'll see how they handle this confrontation with this group of cultists and um, continue from there on to. Castle Wittgenstein. Good afternoon, Mr. Gemologist. This is Sam calling. I just wanted to let you know that the burning of the house was not my fault. It was actually Jake's fault. He decided to light the piano on fire. It was kind of funny. It was trying to bite us. It was a little unnerving. There were hands coming out of paintings. And then there was this little creature in a bottle. And to, you know, kind of pass the time, we were playing spin the bottle. You know, deciding where the ghosts were going to come from next. Except I don't think they were ghosts. Not quite sure. Anyways, just thought I'd give you a harrowing tale for another one of those flat round things that you call a bunny. Well, that is Agent Sam, as played by Amy, and giving a summary of the perception of Sam from the House of Horrors that was George Reed's house, a.k.a. Len Beckles, um, who they decided to investigate this house and it turned out to be a strange house of horrors um they got the lead to go investigate this house from the uh the owner of the mountain view restaurant millie and she had had a thing 
uh, for Len Beckles, or they had had a thing, and she knew that he was an agent named George Reig, and this was who the posse had been sent to go find out what happened to. That lost the agency had lost contact with them and their friend um, O'Malley. Um, what's this guy's name? This guy, uh, Lacey O'Malley, said, "Hey, he works for us. Um, can you find out what happened to him?" So they've seen some strange things already in this town of uh, Easton Hill. The adventure is called uh, The Horror at Headstone Hill, a play on the name of the place. And it is a published, a published like mini adventure, mini campaign by um, Pinnacle Press uh, for Deadlands Game. And uh, this time they went to his house. So I kind of threw some things at them and I thought some, oh, this could have been bad type of things might have happened. So as they approach the house, they see some movement out in the trees. It's, it's dark. Uh, they don't quite catch what the movement is. They kind of draw their weapons and go after it. Uh, these little humans kind of run uh, from the trees. Um, and I guess they fortunately come to the conclusion that they're children. Fortunately, that is, come to the conclusion that they're, they're just kids playing, probably uh, out near the baseball diamond and probably saw activity at the house. I'm so glad they didn't start opening fire before checking out what it was. That would have been horrific. Um, they kind of go back to the house and they go through the back door, which is kind of neat. Um, they see that uh, there is a basement in this house, but they want to kind of clear the floor, maybe make check upstairs before they check in the basement. Um, uh, their pantry is empty, uh, and, but weird stuff starts happening. Sam sees like thinks that uh, she sees a uh, or Sam agent. Sam thinks that they see a, beheaded or a skull in the pantry, but it's nothing. Um, they go to the dining room and uh, there is this kind of painting of uh, Bridger. Uh, is it Jeff Bridger? Jim Bridger uh, that seems to follow them. So Agent Sam goes up to the painting and and the it looks like to Hex and that the painting reaches out and tries to grab Sam. Sam kind of stumbles back, feeling this coldness on her arm, or on their arm, and but uh, catches himself. But Hex like runs out back to the kitchen, almost bolts out the house, but it manages to uh, control uh, her fear. So Jake is like just shaking his head at all this. He seems to be um, immune to these whatever is causing this fear, and uh, then they go. And he thinks he sees something, like some sort of shadow with red eyes as it kind of departs and leaves. Then they go into this library, and uh, this is where Jake finds like a, an oil lamp, and it happens to be full. So he decides to, to keep it and take it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, they find this like jar with a, some sort of 18-inch human in it. Um, it's bizarre. It freaks. Again, the spirits are the spirits that are in here are playing with them, and Hex freaks out. She nearly, she drops the the jar that she feels like there's a tink, tink, tink on the glass, and the face kind of pushes itself of this little human pushes itself against the glass as if it were alive. It is an illusion, and they realize this conceptually and through their skills, but 
you know, Hex freaks out again, drops the, the jar, but uh, Sam catches it. Uh, Jake sees a creature again, and the creature it stares at the creature. The creature stares back and attacks. And Jake is jacked up. Um, and they also realize, unfortunately, that only Hex uh, can, can hurt it. Um, so after they kind of fight and try to deal with it, eventually Hex guns it down with her uh, ghost pistol that she had won in a contest a few adventures back. Um, which is kind of nice and has cast some spells and, and they're able to patch up as best they can. Jake, uh, but he's still got a wound down, but uh, the creature nearly offed him and they know that there are other, these creatures in this house. So they go to the, the parlor next. Uh, they haven't decided, they've decided not to go up. Um, and again, there's another one of these Manitou spirits as it manifests when agent Sam opens the, the grandfather clock and uh, the clock seems to call out Sam's name. And it runs through this piano that's there, this player piano, and into the, into the ground. And suddenly the piano comes to life. And it is, yes, a demon-possessed killer piano. <laughs> and they deal with it really well. It's surprising that, that the kind of the non-wildcard spirit did more to them than the piano. They're able to shoot it up. Um, Jake has the idea to throw fire on it. It catches on fire. It's a blaze. Um, Agent Sam throws a match on it to ignite more of the oil and douse it with more oil. And a couple good shots by Hex and Sam destroy the creature. So they're pretty now like, hmm, we got to watch our step. I think they're going to go upstairs now. But uh, we'll continue them, their exploration of this house of horrors the next time we meet for Deadlands. But uh, Deadlands is super cool. Um, hey, it's Savage Worlds. Um, if you want to learn more about why Savage Worlds is super cool, I'm going to plug in an interview, a live stream that I did that is probably recorded that I did with um, Todd of Hexed Press. I'll put this interview in the show notes. We talk about Savage Worlds extensively. It's kind of It was kind of fun. I looked a little blurry. Maybe I got to fix my camera or adjust the distance between um, my camera and my face <laughs> the next time. But it was kind of cool. The audio sounds really good. I don't sound so, I don't know, wordy, maybe. But it was a really fun. Um, some good, some comments on it. Uh, a few views. Um, and I uh, hope there are some more. But it was really fun to do. And I thank uh, Todd for of Hexpress for that. Uh, interview and to talk about Savage Worlds. So that was my Deadlands game using Savage World rules, and uh, we always have a good time with it. And we're going to play again, not this weekend, but the following weekend, and continue this adventure. So anyway, I think that's probably good. A couple of recaps. Uh, that's what I've, it's been suggested that I do to keep this short and not so long. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much for all the call-ins. That was Rob, uh, a.k.a. Menyon, and Jason Connerly, Joe Richter, my wife Amy. Uh, thank you, TJ Drennan, for the music. And also thank you, Amy, for the new uh, kind of clip art that we're working in, working on um, for the banner for this show. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And TJ Drennan, for the music, with the music and those cool riffs, take us out.